Though I speak cautiously and is not true all over the world, we do look like we're shifting to a live with it phase in the COVID-19 pandemic. And as we do, governments are planning for what we hope is a recovery phase. A big part of that recovery is of course education, but funding education properly could be a struggle for some governments. According to the OECD's Education 2030 agenda, the general rule of thumb for education funding is between 4 and 6% of a country's GDP. But there is intense competition for public monies, with the costs of healthcare, climate change adaptation, aging populations, and military spending gobbling up bigger and bigger pieces of the pie. And things are even tougher for lower income countries. According to the World Bank and UNESCO, one-third of middle and higher income countries reduced their education budgets following the onset of COVID-19, but two-thirds of low-income countries cut theirs. I'm Clara Young and I work in the OECD's Education and Skills Directorate. Today we're talking about the financial sustainability of education in crisis time. How do we invest in education more effectively and efficiently? How can governments tighten the budgetary belt and still provide good education for everyone? And by everyone, I mean especially students who need a little extra help because they're socioeconomically disadvantaged and or having learning needs. The pandemic has made things even harder for them. Here to talk this through with me is OECD senior analyst, Michael Ward, who specializes in global educational development issues, and senior tax economist at the OECD, Bert Briss. Uh, hello, Mike Ward. Hello, Bert Briss. Hi, Clara. Hello, Clara. My first question is, if 4 to 6% of countries' GDP goes to education or should go to education, what are the major things we spend money on in education? So I guess most of what uh, education budgets are spent on is, is teacher salaries. So in the poorer, lower income countries, teacher salaries can account for almost 90%, sometimes 95% of the total education budget. Um, in the OECD member countries, it's lower as a proportion. It's probably somewhere between 65-70%, uh, but it's still a, a huge ticket item for the budget. So teacher salaries is where it mostly goes. But then, of course, uh, materials to support learning, infrastructure. So by materials, you mean textbooks? Yeah, desks. textbooks. Uh, well, like desks under furniture and sort of infrastructure, but certainly curriculum materials, textbooks fundamentally, increasingly computers, certainly in the OECD countries, uh, and maintenance, maintenance of school buildings or everything that, that it takes to make a school institution sort of work. But the, there's no doubt teacher salaries are the, the biggest component of education spending. And can we say that most countries' education budgets are funded by taxpayer money? Well, I, th I think that varies, but uh, to a large extent, uh, the funding does indeed come from uh, general tax revenues. But we calculate it's about 97%. So globally, 97% uh, of all the expenditures on education are coming from domestic resources, mainly, mainly tax. And uh, so that immediately points at the need for countries to raise more tax revenues uh, to be able to finance important spending, including for the education system. 
there is a lot of competition for taxpayers' money uh, with health, climate change, adapt- adaptation, and military. How do you protect the budget that is allocated to education? What really is needed is for many developing countries to raise more revenues. That's, I think, the starting point. There are still so many developing countries that raise less than 20% of GDP in terms of tax revenues. And that's indeed very little and not sufficient to finance all the spending that is needed and also to face the challenges that are coming. Michael? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, this is something we at the OECD are talking a lot with UNESCO, World Bank, uh, other multilateral partners, you know, how do we protect the education budget? The, I think the, the key thing is to, to make a, 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 as convincing a case as we can for, for education's role in, in society and development. We think it's the pillar, really, of economic growth, the pillar of equitable societies, and it also contributes to other things such as better health and also can help societies to tackle climate change and to uh, adapt to climate change. So for us, and we've been arguing this very strongly in meetings in the last two years that UNESCO has been convening, that it's essential to protect the education budgets because if we don't have successful education systems in our countries, it it really will undermine everything that we're, we're trying to achieve as society. If you compare with the healthcare system and financing of healthcare, is that you do have specific taxes and instruments that are directly linked to healthcare. Like you have health social security contributions, you also have health taxes. You know the revenues can be softly earmarked towards towards uh, the health uh, finance and healthcare system. The problem, or the, let's say the challenge for education financing, is that education taxes. That does not exist. There is no direct tax or an instrument that you know directly can go to the financing of the education system. So that's a that's a challenge, and um, that's also partly why we have this conversation. I think we need to, as well as making this investment case for education, we need to equip um, ministers of education and ministries of education with, with better arguments for when they meet with ministers of finance and prime ministers to determine allocations. Um, I know from my own experience, uh, you know, ministries of finance can be quite dismissive of education. They can be quite dismissive of all line agencies, I guess, but, but they, they particularly um, can, can be dismissive of, of ministries of education. I, I remember one country I worked for, worked in a low-income country, where the Ministry of Finance was even dictating how many pieces of chalk should be purchased for each school. Oh dear. So I, I think there is an issue in terms of protecting the edu- education budget of, of, of really putting some, some rods of iron, if you like, up the backs of ministers of education to, to really argue the case with, with finance for, for resources. And if I, may, if I may add to that, because the, I think where international organizations can have an important role to play is to bring these different stakeholders also together. Well, we've been doing a lot of work on our site on health financing, and you'll be surprised, I mean, how little time that and opportunities that Minister of Finance talk to the health, the Ministry of Health. I mean, these conversations hardly happen. Uh, and for sure, the same uh, happens with the ministries of education. So bringing these different ministries together, ensuring that they speak the same language, that, that they understand each other's concerns and building something coherent over time. I think that's a challenge and that's a great opportunity uh, you know, also for us to bring value added. 
so that the different ministries should should be speaking to each other. Yeah. You know, Bert, you you mentioned uh, earmarking or soft earmarks, and uh, you know, for education, and you know, one in some countries they do do that. I, I mean, the Chinese put a three percent surcharge on on uh, VAT for education, and uh, I think India has a two percent tax on tax that goes to education. Is 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 that a system that we could could look to? Is that a good idea? That's basically a. A very complex question, that com- and that's a question that consists of different components. In order to answer that, for me, I always try to disentangle that topic, what you raise. First, the key question is, the first question is, is, is that particular tax that you are referring to, is that a tax that is worthwhile for levying? Is that a good tax that fits within an, a pro-growth agenda? Is that a tax that is inclusive and sustainable? As part you of, mean as opposed to another tax? As opposed to another mm-hmm. tax. That's the starting point. If the, if the answer to that is, no, this is not a good idea to have this tax, then, it, then stop. Then we'll look at another tax. So it needs to be aligned with growth objectives. The tax shouldn't harm growth well, or as, as little as possible, except if there, if there are external effects, in the case of environment-related taxes, for instance. And it should be aligned with that inclusive and sustainable the growth agenda, you know, over time being, um, as we well know. That's the first question. And then there's the, the, the question of the earmarking. And the earmarking there, well, it's clear in the long run when you have your welfare system fully developed, earmarking... That's not necessarily the long-term solution. That being said, reality is, of course, always more complex than, you know, a textbook and and, uh, setting. So in the short run, there might be options. You know, you might use soft earmarking. In particular, with the soft earmarking argument is important. Is, like, for instance, a clear example on a health tax. Health taxes raise important amounts of revenue for developing countries, talk about 1.5% of GDP, but the healthcare system needs way more revenues. So you know that your health taxes will contribute, but will not result in too much funding for the healthcare sector or for specific items. So in that case, there are always other instruments you will need too. So that's the problem with hard earmarking, that if you would start spending too much money on one priority, which means that that priority then has got too much funding that comes at the cost of other priorities who've got not enough money. So that's as long. You mean in in the in this in the sense of education, for example, hard earmarking uh, budget for say uh, STEM for so science, technology, engineering, and math for girls, for example. Exactly. And then yes, exactly. perhaps another program would suffer. Exactly. So. Is that what you mean? Once you have a tax and we say like, well, you softly earmark that type of tax to the education system or subcomponents of it, but you don't want to become too granular in saying we're going to, this type of tax, we're going to really do as, you know, the example that you gave, because then you for you can't fine tune that, you can't align that. You might either continue to over or under uh, spend. So you should be very, very careful with that earmarking. Um, but for sure, in in a developing country setting, it can help to ensure that there is sufficient funding to get things going, to to uh, that things move in the right direction. But it's a difficult exercise, and so you need to be very cautious. 
I think those of us in the education sector who advocate for more resources, we, we don't have the overview. We, we don't have the Ministry of Finance's overview of the whole picture and, you know, education's gain. Sometimes could be health's loss and, and similarly health's gain could be education's loss. But just a word in, in support of earmark taxes for education. I, I worked in India uh, right at the beginning of the education cess that India introduced. And it, it was very important, uh, not just for the revenue raising, but as a signal of the importance of education to the population at large. Um, and it was the education cess was was uh, kind of like this a, is the tax on tax. Just it was a it's cess, a two percent right? it's a two percent additional yeah. tax on on value added basically of, of certain. Uh, certain purchases, so like uh, petrol and your phone bill. So I was paying my phone bill in Delhi. Two percent of my phone bill was was a contribution to the education cess. And the education cess was one part of a kind of square. So you had the central, you know, the federal government revenue going into this. Basically, it was an education for all program, the Sava Shiksha Abhiyan, which was basically a, a national program to get all the children into school, all the children completing at least upper primary. So it was on, on, on one side of the square was the central funding, which was about 25% of the total. And then there was the state level funding into this program, which is about 60% of the total. Then there were donors. There was the, the UK government that I was working for. There was the World Bank. There was the European Union. We were about I don't know, I think we're even 10%. And then this education cess was, was if you like, a, a final piece of that jigsaw. So it, it, it contributed significantly to the to the revenue. But I think more particularly, it, it heightened amongst the population the, the importance of the of education financing. So, so an, an earmark, ta- earmark tax can raise the profile of the program, the, the education objective. Right, so it sends a signal about how much of a priority education is for the country. Yeah, and and that cess has been going now more than twenty years, and there are there is quite a lot of literature about it that you could look at, and there is no, unfortunately, there's no conclusive evidence that says, you know, without this cess we wouldn't have raised this this money because there is, there's everything is fungible. This this whether it made a difference or not, I don't know, but certainly from the perspective of raising the profile in the population for the importance of education and getting all the children into school, I think it was really important. A large part of the problem, especially in lower income countries, is, is as well uh, the problem of efficiency of collecting taxes. But if we look at also different sources for taxing, is there feasibility, for example, to uh, taxing equities transactions? Well, the views differ in, in development countries, the answer probably is not necessarily you want a transaction tax, except if there's very high speculation going on. Many developing countries have incentives, tax incentives in place to develop their uh, national uh, stock market, for instance. And and so on the one hand, you subsidize that through the tax system, and then you're going to have a tax on it. It's not entirely clear cut. It's also not entirely clear that that would raise a lot of revenue. So personally, I would be a bit reluctant on going there. I think there are a lot of other taxes that have a broader basis where the collection mechanism is in place. Um, not knowing this India example, but if you can link your earmark tax to a tax that is in place and that operates well, like the VAT and the India example that was just given, that sounds to me like an interesting idea to look into to see how how that actually interacts. 
But I think the the issue, Clara, is less you know can we find new and innovative ways to to raise resources? More, I think the question is why do we see in the lower income countries that they have a kind of um, tax to GDP ratio of barely 10-11% compared to 34% in the uh, OECD countries. And I think this is a, a more fundamental question, is that these lower income countries and the middle income countries uh, need to spend more on their education systems, basically. There's a, a global funding gap we, we calculate of about $200 billion annually. And, you know, countries need, as we said right at the beginning of this conversation, 97% of the education resources are, are from domestic resources. So if this financing gap is to be closed, it, it really has to come from domestic resources. The aid to education is barely $16 billion annually. So no way is, is aid going to increase to, to fill this gap. So that's that's a fundamental question. How, how can we move the tax GDP ratio in the lower income countries from just just a few percentage points would would probably close the financing gap. Just just moving from 11 to 14 or 15 percent, uh, IMF certainly calculates that, that that this would have fundamental impact both for education and health. Yeah, and many de- I mean developing countries have uh, enormous revenue potential still. There's many taxes that are underutilized for different reasons, which go way beyond. The topic of like for instance a small transaction tax it's is stepping into that broad revenue potential improving the overall functioning of the tax system and its design that's where the revenues are that's where you know for general revenue from which the education system can be funded we're doing at the moment in our team a, a similar exercise for finding uh, revenues for social protection in developing countries and we're making this long list of all the uh, the potentials that countries are facing in order to finance their social protection system. And uh, and then with benchmarking and evaluating the revenue potential on a country by country basis. Like like for instance, to give an example that you know that, that sits in that area of capital taxation, Clara, that you refer to, there is the automatic exchange of, of information that is ongoing now so between tax administrations, say the a resident of one country that has got a bank account or an a portfolio of, of shares in another country. In the past, that information was not shared. Now, with the automatic exchange, tax administrations do automatically share that information with the tax administration where that that owner of these assets is, is resident. So, uh, it becomes a lot more difficult to hide your income, and that that revenue potential that that's enormous, and 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 that's what we should be focusing on is is improving the functioning of the tax system, the, the large revenue sources, to make sure that people just can't hide and evade their, the taxes that, are, that they have to, have to pay. And linking these revenues to education that, and, and strengthening the overall fairness, uh, that's really crucial. There's a lot of work to be done there. Well, and then also with the, the, the 15% global minimum tax uh, to multinational corporations that goes into effect in 2023. That's also going to be a new reservoir of revenues of about uh, $150 billion to tap into for education as well. These are very complex but very groundbreaking changes. It, it will install this minimum floor of 15 effective tax rates. So it's not a statutory rate, so it's an effective tax rate, which basically means that's that's high, that's really significant. And that will put that lower bottom, that floor on, 
on tax competition on, and often harmful tax competition in the sense that many developing countries are locked into this very, very generous taxation for multinationals in order to attract investment, which is important because investment leads to growth and countries need to grow into development. And that, you know, growth will bring also more revenues. So it's, you know, it's fully understandable. They want to attract FDI. They're smart in doing it, but that should not be at the cost of raising a minimum amount of, of revenues because these multinationals also do benefit from the infrastructure that, uh, that countries develop. So it's, it's, it's a major step in the right direction, absolutely. Let's turn to inclusive education. If we are facing the probability of education budgets shrinking in the next few years or decade, and yet we have education whose goal is to be inclusive, that wants to go the extra mile to help students that have trouble doing well at school, students, you know, who may have a disability or who live in a remote rural area or who simply just fell behind during the pandemic because they were not comfortable learning on their own. How do we reconcile these two situations of the perhaps extra expenses uh, of inclusive education and yet education budgets that are not at the level they should be. Well, you, you can't you can't reconcile them. So, so as I say, we estimate the the funding gap. And, and, yeah, I mean the the OECD, UNESCO, uh, UNESCO Institute Statistics, we're all pretty much agreed on on what's needed to achieve the education sustainable goal, which is SDG four, which is basically what you're describing. So inclusive quality education systems that that are ensuring that every child, every young person achieves at least a minimum level of proficiency uh, in, in reading and in mathematics basic skills. So we are a very long way from that. And even before the pandemic, the, the, the world was off track, fundamentally off track. So even in the OECD member countries, the, the measuring the distance uh, report, which is just about to come out, will show it very clearly that even in the OECD member countries, several of the SDG4 targets will not be achieved by 2030. I think in the OECD member countries, it's less of a resource constraint and, and more of a policy failing, if you like. Uh, but what we're looking at in the lower income and the middle income countries, uh, particularly, is, is a fundamental financing constraint, which, you know, we put a, a size of 200 billion on it. Um, and as we've been talking about, you know, the, the, the need to raise the additional resources to, to, to deliver on an inclusive education target. So you can't reconcile them. So a financial gap of $200 billion for education in lower-income countries. Annually. Annually, yes. And like, like I was saying before, certainly the IMF estimates that if, if countries could increase their tax-to-GDP ratio, the, the lower-income and poor-income, if they could just increase their tax-to-GDP ratio by one, two, three percentage points, it would generate sufficient resources to, to eliminate that, that financing gap to a, to a large extent, which is why we're tying these two things together. Is there any possible way that there can be learning programs that are both equitable and efficient? Yeah, there's lots of examples. So we can, using PISA, uh, for example, as a, as a database, we can, we can tell a very good story about Mexico, about Turkey, about Indonesia, 
which has achieved significant improvements in efficiency and equity. Uh, so Turkey, Turkey has doubled its enrollments at, at the lower secondary level in the last 20 years and has maintained uh, quality even though the system has doubled in, in coverage and has ensured that um, twice as many young people in Turkey are achieving at least minimum levels of, of reading and mathematics. So lots of examples. Brazil, Brazil also has made significant progress and you can point to key policies that have, have helped with this and uh, I would say conditional cash transfers would be a, a, a right up there as one of the, the most important contributions. Could you, so could these, you go into that on conditional cash transfers? So these are, these are grants uh, to families. Um, they can be scholarships as well, uh, but basically they are, they are aid to, to households from governments in, in the form of cash with a small set of conditions attached to them. And mostly these, these conditions relate to ensuring that the children of the household uh, complete primary and, and make it into secondary. So certainly in Mexico, in Brazil, we have seen very important achievements in this through conditional cash transfers. And then you can also look at Bangladesh. Bangladesh has made extraordinary progress in education and particularly the education of girls through scholarships. So the central government, initially supported by donors, but now I think doing it entirely on its own, is uh, awarding scholarships to girls to keep them in school. So that now the gender issues in education in Bangladesh are the other way around. It's now the challenge to keep boys in school. So yeah, I think th th those kind of policies uh, have made a big difference. And then combined with targeted granting aid to schools as well, the most disadvantaged schools. And, and you can also use the, the tax system. And it, I, it always surprises me that the, the type of tax incentives we, we give, for instance, through corporate income tax, they're always capital oriented, physical capital oriented, which is kind of peculiar because we, we stimulate businesses through the tax system to invest in physical capital rather than in human beings. And human capital is, well, it's capital. So you could, rethink that to say like well rather than just stimulating making automation even more happen than it already is we just rethink it and see whether there's a role there to stimulate human capital formation within businesses there's an untapped possibility there also regarding labor market participation in many countries women face a lot of hurdles to participate in the labor market well you know and ensuring that they actually have incentives and to, to participate in the labor market indirectly creates a great opportunity to invest in skills because it will, it will really pay off because that's, you know, we see in the tech system that the costs and the benefits of investing in, in skills and human capital are shared between governments, businesses and, and the individual. And so to make sure that it pays is a, is a crucial factor also. And Bangladesh is, a, Bangladesh is a very good example of that. So, so you had the scholarships going in to educate girls, and then you had the garment uh, industry coming up, huge employer of, of girls and women, um, and looking for skilled girls, skilled women, literate women to, to come into the, the garment factories. So, I mean, there's something like 7 million women employed in those factories just around Dakar alone. Well, thank you very much, Michael Ward and Bert Briss. I think we'll end our podcast there and ponder about how we can make up this financial shortfall in education and how to make the budget work in a more efficient way. I'm Claire Young. To find out more about the OECD's work on education and skills, 
Find us on Twitter. Our handle is at OECD EDU skills.